This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, China's new Pacific envoy visits PNG and meets students learning to speak his language. We're very proud that we're the only school in the Pacific that uh, teaches our children how to speak Chinese. We want to increase it. For the first time, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians have come together in court to win a native title over the seas. Words fail me. I think this is one of those um, once-in-a-lifetime things. Unprecedented. It's never happened before. And to celebrate International Women's Day today, we're speaking to a pioneering acrobat from Fiji, lifting her community up to the ceiling. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though... As the cleanup from the devastation of twin cyclones continues in Vanuatu, concerns are turning to dwindling food supplies. Farmers in some provinces are reporting the total devastation of crops. Most of the country's 330,000 people are impacted by the disaster, and it's feared many will face shortages in the coming weeks, as Yvonne Young reports. Just outside Vanuatu's capital, Port Vila, farmers and food sellers are struggling. Back-to-back cyclones Judy and Kevin have wiped out crops and stallholders, such as Margaret Kerry, are concerned about what the coming weeks hold. We've been planning full up crops. My garden was full of crops, but the recent cyclones that came through, Judy and Kevin, they're all damaged, all of them. So I've got no way of making income and I've got no idea when I'll be getting some. Margaret notes that no one is selling food at the market in town. Villagers have long-standing traditions of sharing produce across islands, but it's now believed much of the country's crops have been destroyed. Of what's left, people are pulling vegetables out of the ground so the produce doesn't rot, and the food is expected to last only the next week or two. Distribution is also being hampered by damage to roads, planes and boats. Authorities say about 80% of the country's population has been affected by the twin cyclones, among them an estimated 125,000 children. Charity UNICEF says the situation remains extremely precarious for 58,000 of them, many of whom now have no school to go to. This is our inclusive classroom. The inclusive classroom has been destroyed completely with every resources inside. And uh, we also have other damages around the school, like a few verandas are blown off. It's not known when school will resume, as staff wait on directives from authorities. Many residents are still without power, clean water and telecommunications. The Prime Minister says addressing these are the main priorities. International aid is key. Australia's High Commissioner to Vanuatu says the Ministry of Health is assessing the impact to the country's health infrastructure. While the state of emergency has been declared for the next six months, experts believe the impacts of the evil twin cyclones will be felt for much longer. That was Yvonne Young there, and you can find the TV version of that story by heading to our ABC Pacific Facebook page. Pacific Beat. And as we heard, in the capital, Port Vila in Vanuatu, power is slowly returning to some areas as city residents continue to clean up the capital. Here's more from Michael Oliver, the principal of Central School, on how some pre-disaster planning minimised the damage of Cyclone Judy and Cyclone Kevin. We don't expect two cyclones following each other, but um, on having the 
news of the cyclone with it uh, called Mandehof, Mandehof to do the necessary preparation. And every teacher from kindergarten to year 13 at the secondary level, including the primary, we all um, pack our resources in plastics, put them inside a plastic bag, and um, we are able to cover them with a bigger plastic so that if it is unfortunate that the roof will be blown off, our resources will be safe. Um, the advantages of um, us having our school and uh, the infrastructure not blown off is because we, we, had a, we set aside a budget that we on an annual basis, we, we do necessary repair that uh, we must do so that we keep the environment and the building to be in good shape for students to continue to learn. And during the two cyclone, all our resources are safe. Um, the textbook, the classroom, and we put effort together to clean our campuses. Um, today they will clean around secondary section. Tomorrow we'll move to primary down to kindergarten. So basically outside will be ready by tomorrow. And um, then we will move inside the classroom to reorganize our desk, put our resources back. And um, we're expecting all effort to be completed by at least Thursday. Thursday and we will analyze what is what else is needed to be done, and um, we should call classes, even if there is no power. That was Michael Oliver, principal of Central School in Port Vila. Today we celebrate International Women's Day on ABC Radio Australia. ABC Radio Australia is proud to join women across the Pacific and around the world in celebrating International Women's Day 2023. Broadcasting the very best of women's news, current affairs, music, sport, arts, and much more. Celebrate the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women around the world today. International Women's Day with ABC Radio Australia. Yours in the Pacific. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. And let's head back to Vanuatu to one of the hardest hit areas from the twin cyclone disasters, the southern island of Tana. Joe Iatim is the Secretary General for Tafia Province and is responsible for emergency operations on the island. He joins us now on the line from Tana. Uh, good morning to you, Joe. Uh, good morning, Kelly. Um, so what sort of damage did uh, Cyclone Judy and Cyclone Kevin have on, on your island, on Tana? Uh, the the damage is uh, widespread. We have uh, uh, the uh, it's it's extensive. We have the vegetation that is uh, totally destroyed. Uh, the people of Tana or Tafia province are dependent mainly on 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 uh, on the gardens. Uh, we have uh, the gardens totally destroyed, uh, and then uh, mostly we have the. Uh, local buildings and the semi-permanent buildings, uh, semi-permanent buildings uh, in uh, all the islands that are damaged. Um, so th- that's the extent of the damage uh, that we, we, we have here. And uh, of course, we also have the roads, uh, 
the roads infrastructure that uh, uh, were also damaged during um, uh, by flood, uh, uh, flash flooding across the roads. Uh, so that that these are the main damages that uh, we, we we are facing now. Uh, considering that damage to roads, is that making it hard to access communities and and get them some assistance? Uh, yes, uh, we we have. Uh, uh, the main uh, the main centre here is uh, Lenakel, and that uh, fortunately we have clearance and uh, the public works division uh, here have created uh, um, other alternative roads. But to the um, remote uh, communities, that that's still very difficult. Uh, but people are finding their way either what uh, walking and, and then. Ha- getting to uh, roads that um, are cleared uh, to reach the, the provincial headquarters to provide their reports. But yes, that's, uh, uh, that, that, that's how it, it's, uh, it's going at the moment where we don't have... Uh, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, the trees are also... Uh, f- uh, they have fallen and, um, across the road, so yeah, it, it's quite difficult to get to the very remote areas. Mm. Uh, and um, Joe, you mentioned some of the buildings have been destroyed um, and damaged. Are people mm. in evacuation sites? Uh, is there enough shelter for people? Um, in in communities, yes. Uh, uh, people have organised themselves to to remain um, to remain in main main uh, community areas. But we, we our Evacuation centers are the center. They they are they are not used. We are using them for for storage of uh, of the relief supplies. Uh, but yes, we people in communities have organized themselves, especially through the uh, through the chiefs of the community to uh, house people that uh, don't have uh, houses at the moment. And you mentioned that a lot of the food gardens have also been destroyed in in those cyclones. Um, Does that mean food is is, uh, one of the main needs of of communities? What what sort of assistance do they actually need? Um, Yes, uh, let's say Dafir province population um, depend mostly on the gardens and uh, uh, in the next, uh, say, two weeks, all the foods that, uh, let's say, bananas and uh, root crops like cassava, uh, sweet kumala, uh, taro, uh, they, they will be rotting away uh, in, in two weeks' time. So after two weeks, uh, we, we are expecting people to really go out of food. Mm. Are you able? Are you receiving humanitarian assistance already? Um, from I, I know Australia has sent some assistance there. Have other partners also helped out? Are you hoping there's enough? Are you confident there's enough? Uh, yes, we we so far we are, we are already uh, receiving uh, humanitarian assistance. Uh, currently, we have uh, a French uh, Navy boat with us. Uh, that transported uh, both uh, the um, the relief supplies from um, from the Australian government uh, and the French government. I there, there was also a Hercules in yesterday. Uh, I I haven't got the name straight whether it's a New Zealand uh, uh, plane that came also with uh, some of the supplies, but uh, the the supplies. 
like I mentioned, the Davao province has a population of uh, just over 37,000 people, and uh, if we are to address the food, uh, then that we we need more. Mm. Um, if you are just tuning in to Pacific Beat here on your Wednesday morning, we're speaking to Joe Yautim. He's the Secretary General of Tafea Province, um, and and which covers one of the hardest hit uh, areas from last week's twin cyclones, particularly the island of Tana. Um, but Joe, you were saying some of the smaller islands in in Tafea are also of concern. Have you been able to um, get get some information about how they're faring after the cyclones? Uh, yes, uh, I have information from the other uh, four islands, that's Eromango, Aniwa, Futuna, and Anechom. Uh, we, communica- we are communicating through the, the FISAT or the satellite uh, network, and uh, they have uh, already been providing some of the reports uh, from the islands, and that's what we are working on now to uh, provide some immediate uh, supplies, especially with uh, Shelda. Um, just to make sure that people have sailed uh, before any major uh, rain uh, that will uh, give uh, them another problem. So that that's our uh, priority concern at the moment. Mm. And Joe, yeah. were you prepared for these cyclones? It's so rare to have two cyclones like this back-to-back, and, and they were quite strong. I know they were expected to be Category 3. They went on to be Category 4 when they um, came down to um, Tafea province. Uh, was Do you feel the people there, the, the authorities like yourself, were prepared? prepared? Um, yes, the, 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 the good thing was we, we have experienced Cyclone Palm in 2015, and then uh, there has been the recovery uh, the recovery projects that came in, and uh, people were given a lot of information on how to prepare, uh, especially with uh, the type of buildings that they, they have, and also uh, been given uh, uh, techniques or even... Uh, the seeds of uh, resilient crops. So that's that's something that it's is already with with the people, and I I am uh, I am quite happy that uh, people the uh, people are going are showing a lot of uh, um, self uh, support or are showing showing that, that they they can uh, 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 organize themselves or they they can manage themselves during during this time of the year where we we have cyclones but uh, yes people people are aware that we we will have uh, more than three cyclones this year and uh, they are prepared but you know it's nature you don't know whether the strength of your building or your cadence will sustain you after the the the, the damages Yes, of course. And, and when you have disasters like this, I'm sure it must interrupt, I guess, other um, centers as well, things like schools and, and health services. Um, are they still running at the moment? Are people able to access health centers and, and go to school? Yes, the, the health centers uh, and schools, like I mentioned, they, they, most of the buildings have been uh, uh, reconstructed after the cyclone bump um, recovery projects. In 2015, so those projects were just completed, and we we have most of the schools uh, still intact, and uh, the the clinics uh, uh, they, they are also in intact. In Though we have uh, minor damages on the roofing, but um, yeah, maybe next week we should be expecting uh, schools to be back on. Uh, but otherwise, the uh, 
the helps in this uh, that will they can they can still be operating. Oh well, that's that's good news. Um, yeah. I, I know you've got some work, particularly clearing those those roads and and getting things um, back to normal there. Um, what what is your priorities looking forward? What what help is still needed? Uh, yes, as as you as you you mentioned, the priority now is to have the communication lines back on, so that we we can have uh, uh, people from the other. Uh, the network here we we use is the provincial government, and then we have the area councils. So we really have uh, we really need the area councils to be back on online with the especially through the network, whether it's uh, the two main communication networks here. For the phone and DTCL, and we also have uh, the uh, FISAT uh, system that's connected to almost all the area councils. So that's the first priority to be back on, and then uh, so that we can have good information on on uh, who really needs uh, uh, the especially the 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 shelter kit to be to be supplied to them as soon as possible. And then uh, once we get that cleared, and then we we we, we should be preparing, or uh, we are preparing to uh, to contact a uh, a relief supply if uh, they are food items. Then we can do that also maybe in uh, in uh, three weeks or so. Yes. Oh well, all the best, Joe. And considering those communication issues, um, we're all the more grateful for you to um, speak to us here on Pacific Beach. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> that was Joe Yautem, the Secretary General of the Tafea Provincial Council. You are listening to Pacific Beat this Wednesday morning. My name is Priyanka Srinivasan. China's new special envoy to the Pacific might have been appointed just last month, but Kuan Bo is wasting little time forging ties with regional leaders. He is on his first diplomatic tour representing Beijing's interests in the region. Kuan Bo's latest stop, Papua New Guinea, hitting, hinting at one of China's key strategies for seeking influence in the region as Thekla Ganga reports. He's been in the role for less than a month, but China's new special envoy for Pacific Island countries isn't resting on his laurels. On a visit to Papua New Guinea, Queen Bu spoke praises of the Pacific nation. This is my second time visiting this beautiful country, and this time uh, all I have already seen is re- very impressive to me. Previously, the Chinese ambassador to Fiji Mr. Zian took up the role as special envoy in February. He says his job is to strengthen cooperation between Beijing and the Pacific Island nations. And I will do my best to promote China-PIC relations, in particular China-PNG relations. On the outskirts of Port Moresby, Mr. Zian visited Botuka Academy. With over 3,000 student population, it is the only school in Papua New Guinea that teaches Chinese language. Students had the opportunity to show off their skills. This is your country. And it seems China's most senior diplomat in the region was highly impressed. You speak very authentic, you know, your pronunciation intonation is perfect. 
PNG's foreign minister, Justin Chichenko, praised the school. This gives more opportunity for Papua New Guineans to have a second language like Chinese. Uh, to do more in their life going forward. The academy was built under China's Belt and Road Initiative and opened four years ago. Mr. Chichenko says he'd like PNG to create more education partnerships with China. We're very proud that we're the only school in the Pacific that uh, teaches our children how to speak Chinese. We want to increase it and we want to enhance it even further. PNG is the second stop on Mr. Quinn's trip around the region. Last week, he visited the Federated States of Micronesia and pledged a donation of 2,000 solar lights to the Pacific country. He also promised a grant worth 140,000 U.S. dollars to the FSM Department of Foreign Affairs. Mr. Quinn's next stop visit is Solomon Islands. The country's strong ties to the People's Republic of China came under scrutiny when the nations signed a bilateral trade and security deal. Joshua Dunn, a researcher at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, says the visit will be an opportunity for Mr. Quinn to reinforce that partnership. To really show Beijing that they're doing effective work, that look at us, you know, we're meeting with officials, well, we're getting people on side and we're spreading our narrative. He says China's appointment of a Pacific Special Envoy is significant. It's just a sign that the Chinese influence operation machine, if you like, is really targeting on the Pacific. A report co-authored by Mr. Dunn looked at Chinese attempts to influence opinions around the region. It comes off the previous research found targeted information campaigns by the Chinese government has been effective in Solomon Islands. In this second report published today, we're looking at, through a more regional lens, trying to see if that success that China had in the Solomon Islands has been replicated through Chinese influence operations in the broader Pacific. Mr. Dan says that wasn't the case. Uh, we found that China has certainly committed resources, time, attention and energy to try and you know, get that narrative sway that they achieved in Solomon Islands. But when it comes to the broader region of the Pacific, they have not been successful. His research focused mostly on the distribution of Chinese information on social media platforms like Facebook. But Mr. Dan says the PRC would also seek influence through education partnerships and increasing Chinese language skills in the Pacific. The role of Chinese language and by extension the role of the Chinese diaspora in the Pacific uh, it's something that the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and other think tanks are really looking at. He says it's a strategy China has employed in other parts of the world. We've obviously seen China use things like Confucius centers and, you know, the United Front Network to try and amplify pro-Chinese voices throughout the West and throughout Southeast Asia. It seems like the Pacific, that kind of broad strategy is perhaps lagging behind. If that is the case, it's something the special envoy will be keen to change. That was Thekla Ganga reporting on Chanbo's recent visit to Papua New Guinea. Now it's time to find out what's making news around the region. And to do that, we're joined by reporter Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. 
Uh, now, let's start with some concerning news. There's been a couple of um, reports of measles cases in, in two different parts of our region or, you know, two different parts of our of places close to us. One of it is the Papua region of um, Indonesia and the other is Samoa. Let's start in um, the Papua region in West Papua. What, what's the news there? Yeah, so uh, there's been very concerning reports that as many as um, 15 children under the age of five uh, have reportedly uh, died uh, from measles uh, in central Papua. So that's according to West Papua news outlet uh, Jubi TV, who spoke to a parish priest uh, in uh, Temipa. Uh, and that priest said that number might actually be higher because there were areas uh, around that region that had not been checked. And, uh, and data that the church had said as many as 83 children um, in his ministry alone uh, had, been, had been infected. Mm, very interesting there. I, I guess we haven't um, necessarily verified. This is from GBTV because measles is a fast-spreading disease. Mm. Important to get um, yeah, authorities and, and medical officials looking at this as well. But there's also been authorities coming out to say there's a suspected case of a measles infection in Samoa as well. What do we know about that case? Yeah, that's right. So this one's in relation to an 11-month-old uh, who's being isolated at uh, Matutua Hospital. Uh, so this is reported by TV1 Samoa, and they spoke to the Director General uh, of Health who told the station it's only a suspected case at this stage, uh, and they're currently awaiting blood samples. Um, two other patients have also been tested and, uh, and have luckily returned negative negative results. Uh, however, it's something they're taking very, very seriously. Um, everyone remembers that you know tragic outbreak in 2019, which mm. claimed the lives of a, of a number of children. So yeah, again, they're taking it very seriously and the Director General is urging everyone to uh, get their children vaccinated. Yes, yes. Uh, that is the most important thing. Uh, it was a drop in vaccination levels that did um, result in that tragedy in, in 2019, of course. Um, let's hope that suspected case becomes a negative case soon. Um, I'm sure a lot of people in Samoa are looking very attentively uh, to to the results of that test there. Um, and now let's um, head well to where we are in Australia. The government last month, I believe, um, sort of outlined their plans to um, have this visa lottery, 3,000 visas available to the Pacific. But now the co- opposition here has vowed to oppose it. Why is that? Yeah, so it's really interesting. So uh, Australia's federal opposition has labelled the scheme uh, arbitrary and patronising to Pacific people. So this is reported uh, by the ABC yesterday, and it's in relation to that proposed scheme, which would allow up to 3,000 Pacific people to migrate to Australia each year through a ballot process. Um, but it's the idea of that lottery process is what the opposition says is a step too far. Uh, they say citizenship uh, shouldn't be decided by pulling a name out of a hat. Uh, they also said they'd support a Pacific migration process, sort of the principle of it, but they say it should target highly skilled migrants and people who can make an economic contribution basically straight away, whereas as it's proposed now, the scheme would only apply to those with formal job offers uh, in Australia who are aged between 18 and 35. Mm, very interesting. So considering the opposition's opposition to this uh, <laughs> deal, does that mean this proposal for these 3,000 visas, this 
lottery, Pacific lottery system might not be passed? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. So without that opposition support, uh, the current government uh, is going to need backing from other political parties, uh, one of which is the Greens, uh, as well as uh, two crossbench senators. Um, The Greens are yet to finalise their position on the matter. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, The government initially had hoped to have this scheme scheme up and running by July, but you'd think that might potentially be pushed back now that uh, there's some opposition to it. Yes, well, we need to see if it, if it does if it does fall over or not. Um, and we'd love to hear your thoughts, um, listeners. Uh, do get in touch with us at ABC Pacific. I don't know if you read, Carl, a, a month ago, um, our reporters out in the Pacific, um, Chris and Rita, Amanu Leong and uh, Lide Movono, did this great piece looking at what Pacific people actually think about this visa. And a lot of them were quite excited to have an easier entry into Australia, similar to New mm. Zealand's scheme in the region. Um, so, we, but, you know, the coalition has said that the lottery system is what they're imp- opposing, having names pulled out of a hat rather than looking at the skills of the people coming over. Um, so, yeah, I'm interested to know what people think about that. You know, mm. is, it, is it a lottery system that you want or maybe a, a more formal or different process to get to Australia. It's the language one that's quite interesting. I guess a lottery would make it sound like it's a prize in yes, some ways, indeed, doesn't it? Indeed. Um, now let's head to some sporting news, a very interesting one here with a review that will be undertaken to look into the performance of Fiji's Sevens team. Um, why is that re- review happening? Yeah, so FRU's confirmed this. It was on the back page of the Fiji Times yesterday, I believe, and it's uh, I guess there's some speculation that uh, um, uh, the, the coaches and management might might uh, sort of be in the hot seat just given the, uh, the the recent results and most recently the results from both the men and women uh, at the World Rugby Series in Vancouver. So FRU confirmed that they'll review not only the players but coaches uh, ma- and management uh, as well. Uh, however, they made no comment uh, on the future future of, uh, of, of anyone involved uh, as of yet. They'll just wait until those those reviews have been finalised and, uh, and and make a decision from there. Yes, very interesting because I know there were talks about um, pressure being on the teams to perform, mm. to get that Olympic space, uh, place. Um, and I think you were reporting last that Fiji has lost. They've dropped down from the top four, so it might mean they not might they might not get that Olympic place. What's the situation now? Well, surprisingly, they're actually still in the top four, but oh, they uh, are. Sorry, yeah, just by the skin on their teeth. No, I, I might have. Uh, I think when I said that last time, Australia still had a game to play, and at the time, I expected Australia to actually uh, leapfrog them. But Australia, in some ways, uh, this is the men I'm talking about, wasted a bit of a, a golden opportunity. I thought because they, after beating Argentina, uh, uh, tabletop as New Zealand, and then lost yeah. to Argentina to claim bronze. So, oh, really? So now uh, Fiji uh, is still sitting in fourth, but a tie on the same amount of points as Australia. So, yeah, it's very, very close at the moment. But the Fiji men are still there. Uh, as for the women, they're they're on the outside looking in. They're in sixth place, about twenty points behind fourth place France. So they've they've got a long road back. But as for the men, yeah, look, they're they're still very much in the hunt. But uh, it's going to be a really uh, crazy finish to the World Rugby Seven Series. Yeah, very interesting to see and. And I wonder what this performance review, what outcome that will have. And maybe it mm. might sway um, the direction of the Fiji Sevens uh, one way or the other. But uh, very interesting to see what's happening. And Kyle, do you, I know this is, uh, this is, well, I got, 
I got a bit, um, uh, I got a bit of complaints from the newsroom, at least, for calling, <laughs> uh, suggesting surfing wasn't a sport. But <laughs> I will now suggest that acrobatics might not be a sport. But we do have an acrobat coming up. What do you make of this, Kyle? Uh, acrobatics, sporting, an not acrobat, like from a circus. Well, I guess they do perform in circuses. Yeah, yeah. that's 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 my uh, very um, it's very physical, uh, very basic definition of of an acrobat. <laughs> I've got to say, I don't know a ton about it, but but no, I. I'd, I'd probably say acrobats. I mean, look, they're, they're some of the most athletic people in the world, so I'm not saying they're not athletes, but uh, I would have said it's more of an activity, I guess, as opposed <laughs> right. to a sport. Sorry right. to all the acrobats out there. Maybe I'll, I'll put it to the acrobat. Um, we've got this wonderful female Fijian acrobat coming up on our show, and she's committed to supporting children and women and, and others, her community at large, through performance, through dance, and through aerial acrobatics. Um, we'll be speaking to her later in the show um, to com- to mark uh, International Women's Day, in fact. So um, stay tuned to that. It's, it's sporting adjacent, I'll say I it very well. I cannot least. wait to hear about it, and hopefully I'm proved wrong. <laughs> yes, indeed. We'll be speaking to her and, and have some other news stories right after this break. Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. When you're younger, you don't really take note of the significance of this ritual until you're much older. Then you realize that you're proud to be part of this ritual. So join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. Wednesdays at 3.30 p.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You are listening to ABC Radio Australia. This is Pacific Beat. In a landmark Australian court decision, the traditional owners of Mare Island and other First Nations people in the Torres Strait region have won a native title over the sea. For the first time, the claim brings together Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians to achieve native title outcomes. When the decision was handed down in court, there were cheers of celebration and singing. And in fact, singing proved to be a crucial evidence in the proceedings. The ABC's Damien Carrick spoke to the traditional owner, Louis Ned David, and Federal Court of Australia Justice Deborah Mortimer about the case. Words failed me. I think this is one of those um, once-in-a-lifetime things. Unprecedented, it's never happened before. Certainly not in the native title space where Torres Strait Islanders and um, Aboriginal brothers and sisters uh, have got a consent determination recognising, you know, combined groups, rights and interests um, in the waters where... Basically, I think reconnecting amongst ourselves and reconnecting with our Aboriginal brothers and sisters who, you know, we've interacted with, worked with, shared, you know, a lot of this uh, sea country for a very, very long time. What's essentially happening here is, you know, Western laws finally caught up to and is recognising, you know, what's been around for, you know, a very, very long time. It's also 30 years since the High Court's Mabo decision that established native title. And, of course, Eddie Mabo was a Torres Strait Islander. And one of the peoples involved in this litigation are the people of the island of Mare, Eddie Mabo's home. So, in a way, this consent determination is the completion of the circle. 30 years ago, the people of Mare achieved native title over the land, and now they have native title over the sea. Well, that's exactly right. This is a continuation of what um, Uncle Eddie started um, all those years ago, back in, you know, 80, 81, 82. Um, And the decision in 92, um, obviously, you know, everyone knows that, sadly, you know, that decision came after he passed. And, you know, those famous words, you know, 
you know, all the resources, all the fishes in the sea belongs to me and my people. And we're basically, I think, um, what we're doing now is delivering on, you know, those prophetic words that he said in, um, in that clip. Justice Mortimer, a very, very significant uh, consent determination handed down uh, here on Thursday Island. Why is it so significant? It's significant for a number of reasons. It's significant because of the coming together of mainland Aboriginal groups, Ankamuthi and Gurunyangdakanu, and uh, people of the Torres Strait, the Kaurig, Kukagal, and Kemakema Meriam. So five groups coming together uh, in a landmark agreement about their sea country. And why is it a landmark agreement? Well, because of the unity that's been shown, uh, because they've put aside their differences and in a traditional owner-led negotiation process, they have been able to resolve um, differences about boundaries, about who has rights in which sea country, both within the native title space and then by a side agreement, a customary rights agreement, which is, as far as I know, a complete innovation in the native title jurisdiction. So the idea is that even though there are now lines in the sea, uh, dividing native title areas between uh, different groups, there is also this other form of agreement, this other form of recognition of of, of traditional occupancy uh, of the sea country. That's right. And, uh, And to the people who live and work in the sea country whose lives are bound by the sea country, um, those customary rights are just as important as anything else. And so to see them reach agreement on both fronts is really uh, terrific. Hey, let's move under some shelter. Can I get you to grab it? The um, rain is now coming bucketing down. Joe, but do you think this will make a difference to the real lives of people here? I do, and I've heard it from um, many of the native title holders themselves. They feel like they will be back in control of their country, having lost it through a process of colonisation, and now they feel that they will be on an equal footing in negotiating with uh, whether it's fishing operators or tourism operators. They will be at the table officially. And one of the advantages of it being over 40,000 square kilometres and with five different groups who, you know, really nutted out a a kind of a a comprehensive agreement. Um, I know there are a few corners yet to be worked out, but essentially we've got a kind of a really comprehensive agreement. That provides a kind of a unified platform to come to the table uh, when, when these sorts of issues around resources and management are being decided. Precisely, and that's what I said today. People are more powerful together, and the groups that have come together today will have a significant amount of power in this region, and that is long overdue. That was Australia's Federal Court of Australia Justice Deborah Mortimer speaking there to ABC's Damien Carrick about that landmark ruling around the First Nations people in the Torres Strait region. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. It is a Wednesday and it's also International Women's Day. Today on the show, we're highlighting one woman doing imp- incredible things in her community. In Fiji, Atatha Ravavu spends a lot of her days hanging from a ceiling while twisting and turning down long sheets of silk. She also teaches others to do to, to do it. Uh, to find out why, we're joined by the woman herself, Atatha. Welcome to to Pacific Beat Bulavanaka. 
Thank you so much. Um, so let's start. I, I know you're part of this art center, which has a lot of components to it, but I, you're, you yourself are an aerial acrobat. Can you tell us, how did you get into it and what is it exactly? Um, well, um, I got into it, I started off as a dancer mm-hmm. in 2002 and then I met with um, uh, the lady Andrea Torres from the Samadhi Hawaii Aerial of Arts uh, School in Hawaii who brought it over to Fiji while I was at the Oceania Dance Theatre in the University of South Pacific in 2012. Um, after leaving the um, university um, dance uh, centre, I um, decided to go into my own and create my own, which is something that's always been childhood dream, really. Um, for me, it was um, about establishing a performing arts school um, to give opportunity to other ki- to kids who may not be able to have access to um, uh, uh, the performing arts. Mm. Um, so, for me, I'm not I'm. I don't do all the crazy hanging stuff uh, out there, amazing things. I do teach basics, um, but I do have other instructors who do the um, aerial arts. Uh, it's, you know, dancing in the air, creating a world um, of beauty in flight, really, um, is what we um, try to do with the aerial arts. Yes, because it is it is quite an amazing performance. I've only seen it once, I think, during a, a circus performance. And yes, there are silks in the air, quite a beautiful, beautiful sight. But I wanted to ask that that comp- component of your performing arts centre, it's Moana Loa Performing Arts Centre. You started it mm-hmm. in just recently, 2022. And as you mentioned, it's this got this community focus, the social focus, particularly looking at getting kids off the street exposed them to to performing arts. Why is performing arts, this beautiful aesthetic thing like dance and acrobatics, um, important when we look at trying to create this this community change? Um, with the with the groups that I um, like to work with, and um, it's the really the vulnerable groups within our communities, women, children, and youths um, who come from. Uh, or broken homes, really. Um, it's for me the arts is a a great way for them to to escape that world, um, but also to help them create a new and um, hopeful one. Um, and it's also a way for them to express themselves, uh, to voice what they're going through and to be able to tell their stories so that others around them can understand what it is they're going through. It is a, he- it is a healing, um, it is also a healing tool, a tool, tool that I use uh, that could help people heal from past traumas. And um, for me, that's why it's so important um, that we uh, are able to reach out to these vulnerable communities and to help them out of uh, um, the places that they may be in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would build a stronger community as well. 
Because uh, are there any? What has been the response to that approach of, of people who maybe may not have a background in performance and dance to to step into your center? Because I, I imagine, Arthur, if you asked me to to perform or dance, I'd be quite uh, quite scared, to be honest. Do you have some barriers that people put up that you sort of have to break down before they're ready to be a part of of the center? Um. For me, it's uh, I, I'm just I have a lot of people that are interested, especially the young kids. But the 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 challenge is to having their parents feel comfortable uh, with uh, bringing their children into our studio and to learn this new art form. Um, and so I've uh, tried to create free classes where those who cannot afford to pay for the um, paid classes can uh, come in their part of and set up a program or a day where only these these kids may come in and um, uh, be able to experience this world of uh, uh, performing arts. Um, And it's funny funny just because just recently, just last week, we had some women and some young girls come in to ask if they could take part in the program. I've had this uh, idea up for the past two years, but no one really has come forward. Um, and, um, and, bas- and it's really just the perception, I think, that, um, that people have around arts and dance in Avril uh, that is uh, the biggest challenge. What is that perception that they have with some of that? Um, um, yeah, um, I think the fact that um, that it's not as valued as other, um, let's say, other activities like sport. Mm. Uh, you know, with sports, they can see uh, their child uh, perhaps uh, being able to take that on as a career later in life. With the dance and aerial arts, it's um, not something that's going to bringing the dough kind of thing. Mm. Um, also, perhaps they may feel intimidated um, by uh, the the uh, the other students that come in um, to our uh, studio. And we mostly have a lot of uh, the expat community that take our classes. And and uh, for me, I'd like for my the local communities to take the opportunities that's uh, um, given to them uh, freely to be able to come in and do that as well. Mm. Uh, So that's why I created just a special day for them, a program where they can explore the space, perhaps without feeling uh, too intimidated by others who may be more skilled um, than they are. Yes, because uh, as you said before, Atitha, I mean, the, your approach to performance and dance seems to be something like a, like a therapy. You said it's a place to, to share stories, to heal. Uh, have, you had, have you seen some students maybe um, through performance and dance have that process, have that healing transform- transformative experience? Um, yes, I have. Um, I've, I've done a f- uh, some projects with uh, organizations such as the Fiji Women's Rights Movement. Um, and the project was called the Girl Program. And I got to work with 20 young girls who came in with um, 
social issues that they faced within their homes and in the communities um, and the inequalities that they faced or the bullying that they faced. And this this all culminated into a theater a play um, that um, integrated dance and music and acting uh, where their stories were told through one story. Their issues were told through one story. And, I've, and what I learned is this gave them the confidence to really speak out more about the things that they were going through um, to be more opinionated and to also become agents of change within their own uh, um, classrooms and their communities. Um, it's, uh, it, was, uh, it helped them with their um, believing in themselves as leaders. I've also worked with um, the incarcerated youth through dance um, that I teach at the prisons. And uh, what um, the feedback I got from the psychologists was that it really opened um, them up to speaking more and sharing more with her. And, and she found a huge difference in two weeks in the way that they uh, perceived themselves and the way that they perceived the world. Um, so these are... You know, these are these are, these are the, the the milestones that for me, um, or the things that really show how um, strong the arts are in healing and in therapy, in changing and empowering and inspiring people. And considering that, um, particularly on what you said before with the young women you've worked with, with the girls, I mean, today is International mm-hmm. Women's Day, um, and that's one of the reasons we've invited you on uh, to highlight the role of creativity um, for women's empowerment. Um, as we head to the top of the clock, is that something important to you for arts and, and women to have them come together? Um, yes, it's very important. Um, I think, you know, women in Fiji, we have a plethora of knowledge and skills in the indigenous arts and in storytelling. And, you know, these are, have been passed down through our grandmothers, to our mothers, to our children, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and these arts are the basis of our identity of who we are. And we, you know, we are women who uh, I know are resilient in the face of um, a disaster. We're women who are faced with gender-based violence in the home. Uh, we are women who have stories that we need to tell, that stories that can change our situations as well as in- inspire and empower others. Mm. Um, and in, we, we are women who, if we're given the right opportunities, um, we can become leaders within our communities. Yes. And... Yes. yes, and so through the arts... Yes, that's uh, we, that's we the way it's it. um, achieved. We're just coming up to the top of the clock, but that's such important words there, Atita. Thank you so much for joining us on Pacific Beat. Um, that is Atita Ravuvu from Moana Lower Performing Arts Centre. Do check her out if you're ever in Fiji.